Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers. I'm with my co-host as usual, Chris Bovey. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Daryl. Good to see you. Yes, sir. Actually, it's the first time. Yeah, it's welcome to January 2021, even though things are actually getting worse in our community. We managed to safely uh, gather in the lecture theater here in Ontario Shores. We are socially distant. Uh, we have a guest coming up to discuss uh, Alzheimer's Awareness Month, which is January which we'll get to in a few moments, which we're, we're doing virtually. Uh, but we are being safe, and uh, these are kind of unique times uh, in Ontario and around the world. And uh, again, thank you to our staff, uh, everybody here at Ontario Shores, who uh, for since March now, I mean, I think our staff have been incredible for many years, though 101 years that we've been around, but uh, they've also obviously been challenged quite a bit the last uh, nine months, going on 10 months during this pandemic. And, uh, our thoughts are, are with them as they, they deal with the stress day in, day out. Yeah, I think when you look at everything we've got to deal with, with, with uh, not just the work that they do here, but their family lives, so, you know, homeschooling. I'm sure it's been a real joy for you yeah. to do some homeschooling. But, it, it, you know, all the added pressures and uh, on families and still providing care is, is it's amazing to see and, and it's unprecedented times. And I, and, and even beyond Ontario shores, across the, the you know, across Ontario, across the world, you know, people are, are so many people are stepping up and doing the right thing. And sometimes it feels like you're not getting there, but, but we will get there eventually. Yeah, and that's part of the reason I mentioned that we're at Ontario shores and we're not at a tropical location or traveling. As some of the controversies that have been out there recently, we are doing our best to follow guidelines. Uh, and I think one of the things that's unique about where we're at uh, now, or a little maybe not unique is the right word, but in March, April, May, when we were dealing with kind of rising numbers and pressures, um, COVID was, you know, the focus of our work and, and people's, you know, uh, careers uh, across the province, country, and so forth. But uh, we've evolved and we're still doing our, our work. And like the regular work of people, right. the calendars, the things that they have to do is, is continuing. And that's part of what we're trying to do today uh, by welcoming in our, our, our next guest, uh, Dr. Amher Bernhan, who is our physician-in-chief and geriatric psychiatrist here at Ontario Shores. Dr. Burhan, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's great, uh, great that you guys continue to do this uh, during this uh, tough times. It's, uh, it's, it's obviously we, we need to continue to do uh, our core mission of helping people. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, and yeah, thank, thanks again for joining us. And you actually have a unique uh, kind of story here at Ontario Shores because you were announced as the new physician in chief during the pandemic and you started uh, during the pandemic. So this is your normal at Ontario Shores, for lack of a better uh, term. So what's it been like uh, joining the organization in such a critical time in the history of healthcare? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, part of it was that uh, as as uh, the position uh, had been uh, advertised, uh, it was at the time when uh, we started getting a bit of control over the first wave. And uh, while we always anticipated the second wave will happen in the fall, 
obviously the decision to move here happened before that. So uh, not that I would have changed my mind, but uh, I'm just saying it, it is definitely a challenge to move uh, to uh, a new location uh, at the time when the second wave started uh, picking up uh, steam. So, uh, the, but the one thing that I, I have to say that uh, in a way it is a mixed um, feeling because one of it is that, you know, being busy is always good when you deal with, with, uh, with a situation like this. Um, and being in an organization that has uh, its act together when it comes to good uh, infection control practices and, and, you know, we've been quite uh, informed about what's happening. Uh, there's a lot of uh, activities when it comes to the pandemic that uh, have done uh, that have done very well so far in terms of uh, keeping ourselves safe and our patients safe. So uh, while, while it is always challenging to move in a time like this, I, I think it's not as difficult because I'm moving to a place that is organized and um and have, uh, have the best interests of people in mind. Hey, well, it's a pleasure to have you on board, and, and especially during this month, because it's Alzheimer's Awareness Month, um, and, and a lot of the work that you do in this field. Um, obviously, we, we kind of led into today, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and its impact on people, but um, Alzheimer's is, or other dementias have touched so many people. I'm sure Daryl has stories, we all have stories of, of loved ones, but during this time, it's so hard, in a, you know, when it comes to long-term care and caring for, for people with, with dementia or Alzheimer's that are in long-term care or at home isolating and just, you know, you kind of believe for, for people how to, how to reach out and care for people. And I'm wondering your thoughts or perspectives on that. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, obviously always faced the challenge of caring for people with Alzheimer's disease because of the complexity of that illness and how much it affects people's lives uh, and, and care system. Uh, the, the pandemic added several layers of complexity. I think one of it is that it is uh, the population that is the most vulnerable to, to negative effects of, of this uh, pandemic. So people who uh, get COVID and they are in old age and have dementia are more likely to be the one that get harmed by it and, and die from it. And then unfortunately, um, you know, all the interventions that we have worked uh, so hard over the years to come up with to facilitate uh, activation, for example, family connection uh, had to be put on hold due to the pandemic. So I think all the care providers in the field of Alzheimer's disease, uh, particularly actually in the field of behavioral symptoms of Alzheimer's, you know, have, have had to face this reality that uh, you no longer access the kind of resources that you would refer people to. You know, for example, you tell a person with Alzheimer's disease and their family that maybe a day program will be a good thing to do, uh, keep, keep you active, keep your mind active and socially active. Well, now all of them, uh, most of them have closed or had to be modified. So I definitely think that the challenge has been uh, tremendous. The practitioners in the field, uh, including uh, you know physicians, uh, nurses, uh, social workers, people who care for people with Alzheimer's disease, inpatient and outpatient, have really done as much as they can to modify the way they practice. So we've kind of moved toward phone calls, moved to virtual interaction with, with patients and families, but we did not stop the core mission, which is if a person needs care, we still admit them to, to get care. So it had to balance all these uh, priorities in a way. I still, you know, my heart goes to, to caregivers who are now have to do more on their own uh, and then they have to wait at least longer for, for care. Uh, my my pride of, of uh, the team in Ontario showed that they have really done everything possible to reach out to, to provide the care in, in despite all the difficulties. Just on the topic of the pandemic and COVID-19, 
we are at the stage uh, in 2021 where healthcare uh, workers are being immunized. Uh, we started here at Ontario uh, Shores just a couple of days ago with our first staff being receiving the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, there are plans, uh, obviously, for expansion of healthcare workers, but also for uh, vulnerable uh, citizens in our community, which would include people that uh, live with dementia. Uh, how, and from a physician's perspective, and a, you know, in your role as a psychiatrist at Ontario Shores, where, how important is this vaccine? I, I mean, it sounds like a silly question, but like for this vulnerable population and the people that work with them, like. Uh, how important is it that people choose to get vaccinated when they have the opportunity? Yeah, so, so I think one has to draw um, a bit of parallel between when we talked about the flu vaccine, for example, over the years and, and between this particular vaccine and, and how the, the urgency might be a little bit different. Uh, there's a couple of things that, uh, that I've heard over time. One, people said, well, it's my choice. Um, I don't want to uh, get the vaccine. When, when we talked about the flu vaccine, you know, uh, although I continue to, to emphasize the importance of having the flu vaccine when you go to a, a aggregate setting, like where, where people are vulnerable, uh, such as uh, seniors with dementia, uh, this is even more urgent. Uh, it's a, and there's a couple of things that are different about this. One, that the efficacy of this vaccine from the studies that we've seen, is higher than the efficacy of the flu vaccine. So, so when you see a prevention rate uh, of you know 90, 95% compared to maybe 40, 40. I mean, so it's really almost double the efficacy. So we know that we're, we're getting more benefit for the risks that we're taking with the vaccine. And then when you look at the risk from the vaccine, you know, unfortunately, anything that is new and unknown create a lot of anxiety. Uh, so people are, are uncomfortable taking something that hasn't been there for a long time, worrying about long-term consequences, which is very re reasonable question to ask. But we have to look at what we, you know, what evidence and what science and, and that we have today. The, the vaccines have developed in a very smart way. Uh, they have been in uh, research for, for over 12 years uh, to understand, you know, how do you do uh, messenger RNA kind of um, vaccine. So it's not new in the sense that in one year we created this whole science and we, you know, forced it to, to trial. This is predated COVID-19. We always worried about the possibility of having an, a, a pandemic and scientists have been working on it. And then when we put it to test in these trials, uh, it, it is showing the same uh, safety profile that we predicted. So allergic reactions, there has not been not, uh, not one vaccine or one medication in the world that does not have allergic reaction as a caution. Uh, so the, the few people that will have the allergic reaction will have the allergic reaction. The, the main thing is to make sure that we're prepared uh, we monitor, we make sure we intervene. So if somebody has anaphylaxis, which is one of the worst allergic reaction that get you to choke and not breathe, well, you know what? That is treatable within a few minutes with an injection of the EpiPen or epinephrine, right? So, so we need to be, uh, so while we take risk with everything we do, in this particular situation, we have a very high gain and the same low risk that, that we have always known about vaccines. And the other major important point to make here that this is a pandemic. This is something that have affected every single aspect of our lives. So if we have a tool in our hand, I don't think it's time to speculate about what will happen in 20 years from now. I mean, we have an urgent need to address this issue today. You know, and healthcare, provider, healthcare providers are actually really the, the first line of people who have to be convinced that this is a useful thing. Because otherwise, 
we're going to send people mixed messages and, and create more confusion. So I'm unambiguous about this. You know, this vaccine is there. It's helpful. It's low risk. I'm going to be happy to take it, whatever is provided to me. And that's because I know the value for people. Even if I can survive COVID, I know my patients may or may not survive COVID because they're older and more vulnerable to the negative effects. Just to follow up on that, one of the things I saw that you said recently was you almost would put a higher, I think you said you would put a higher value on having our staff vaccinated than our residents uh, because yeah. of what they can bring into the hospital. So I was wondering if you could just elaborate on uh, on that piece specifically. Yeah, so, so I mean, one thing to clarify that, 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 you know, it's really all about the patient at the end in terms of they are uh, our priority to protect here because a, a person who is under our care in the hospital, they're in an aggregate setting, they are vulnerable to the negative effects. So we're still saying that they're a priority. But as you said, the, the, the healthcare providers are the ones that go to the community and, uh, and may get more exposed to, to pick up the virus. So coming back from the community to an aggregate setting, it's really uh, you know, a fire in a, in a haystack. We have to think about that possibility of spreading something that would be so harmful to this group of people who have no choice but being there because they have an illness that requires them to be in the hospital. So healthcare providers have a big ethical responsibility to consider the option very carefully and not assume things, not uh, saying, well, you know, I'm going to wait and see what happens to other people before I do it. We need that leadership. You know, if, if the science is clear and, and, and the studies are clear and we are taking risk, but it's very calculated risk, uh, I think it's, it's a big ethical responsibility. So, you know, being in the health field to start with create uh, all kind of changes in our way of thinking about life and about risk that we take. I mean, think about the surgeon, uh, you know, uh, the emergency room physician who get exposed to different things. Well, we always know that, right? In our field, the risk of violence is there. I mean, we could be exposed to violence from patients. Does that stop us from practicing our field? I mean, we, we know the risk and we put everything in place to, to try to mitigate that risk. And that's the same with, with vaccination. Dr. Baran, uh, two years ago, Canada created a national dementia strategy. And so there were three pillars, and, and, and maybe I'll break them down, but I wonder if you could speak to where you think we are as a nation related to um, those pillars where, you know, preventing dementia, advancing therapies to find a cure, and improving the quality of life of people living with dementia. How do you feel we are as a nation on those, on those pillars? Yeah, so I mean, I think Canada had really created a very interesting and internationally recognized now initiative um, which is the Canadian Consortium in, in Neurodegeneration and Aging. And uh, that, I'm part of that initiative, uh, participate in, in at least two of the teams. So it's really asking that question that this is a, a big uh, global problem and definitely for in our country, a public health uh, you know, uh, priority. So you know, that initiative have now recruited um, you know, close to a thousand people, I believe, in terms of understanding the trajectory of uh, cognitive change in old age and also illnesses like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's dementia, Lewy body dementia, and other dementia. So the teams are quite uh, diverse. Uh, some of them are working on the basic mechanism of this illness, trying to understand the very first signal of, of this illness, where does it happen in the brain, and a lot of basic science happening there. Uh, and then we have the imaging group that's looking at early markers. Um, so so that, that work is, is really internationally known and, and forefront in, in, in you know, the international circuit. 
We also have uh, therapeutics being developed. So a lot of trials to try to find disease modification. As you know, for years, we were hoping that at one point we'll find that molecule that if we stop from accumulating, will stop the illness from happening. A lot of the trials have failed over the years, and, and we are learn every time we, we see a failure, we learn from it. We say, well, maybe what we're doing now is going all the way to the end of the, uh, of the disease process and try to target it. We should go back earlier. So you, you will see that uh, all of us are now moving to the earliest possible stage of the transition between normal age and, and cognitive disorder to see if intervening there will be. So we just started getting some positive signals. I mean, uh, there, there was the first uh, approval of a, of a medication that modifies the amyloid in, in Alzheimer is out there, but also other pathological markers, other, other brain markers are now being targeted and we have the tools to target. Now, th this is an area that is uh, definitely in the hands of uh, basic scientists, uh, neurologists, imaging scientists, and we participate in that by actually bringing our patients to, to these studies if uh, we can. The bigger cluster that I'm part of is more the quality of life and, and, and trying to finding way of helping people live with this uh, illness. And, and definitely the uh, behavioral symptoms of dementia, neuropsychiatry of dementia became a focus of uh, my work and the work of my colleagues in geriatric psychiatry and, and all day psychiatry, because it is really where we find ourselves the most um, involved and most useful in a way. So as you know, that uh, behavioral symptoms of dementia start from very early on. In fact, most people, before they develop something like Alzheimer's disease, they will have depression, they will have anxiety, they will have... And, and I think the field of psychiatry and the field of geriatric psychiatry can be in the forefront to try to identify those early signals and help prevent, if we, if we can prevent illnesses like Alzheimer's disease by treating mental illness adequately, um, you know, maybe treated in different ways where we actually look at neuroplasticity in the brain. How do you stop depression from damaging the brain? I think we have a huge opportunity there to contribute to that. So while we improve the quality of life, we're actually adjusting the course of that illness, maybe stopping it from progressing. One thing I want to share with you that um, people who have Alzheimer's disease and agitation, which is obviously a big part of what we do in Ontario Shores and, and geriatric psychiatry, tend to progress faster uh, in their illness and tend to die more uh, earlier from that illness. So you can see that our contribution to the prevention is still there by treating the behavior. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to highlight that um, you know, long-term care facilities and, and hospital settings, geriatric psychiatry, Areas that have not been really uh, traditionally very engaged in research, but uh, but we are now in the forefront of several studies to try to address that. Uh, and I'm I'm happy to share some of those details once uh, if, if you had that on your mind in terms of discussing. Yeah, that's actually just what I was going to say. Uh, some of the maybe you can talk about some of the work in the research field that you're excited about that you're participating in, or or that you're hearing about coming down the, uh, the pipe. Like what what's getting you excited about this? Field yeah. research. Yes, I mean, so one area, as, as I mentioned, is, is really looking at, um, um, you know, modifying behavioral symptoms of dementia, including agitation and aggression, um, in a way that would be uh, first effective and, and helpful to patients and families, but also in a way that is um, uh, less harmful. So, mm -hmm. so we've had uh, a lot of um, you know, reports on medications that have been helpful to help, but then we, we learned down the road that uh, they can increase the risk of um, stroke and, and death. So we, we, then we got stuck in a situation where we want to help the person, 
who is in a state of agitation, angry, maybe imposing harm on themselves and others because they're just um, quite uh, you know, confused and angry about a situation that we can't really put our finger on. Then we give them medication and we may help them with that only to find out that we might be harming, right? So we started reinvestigating this, this, this whole field again. So collaborators from, uh, from Canada have uh, several uh, sites in, 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 in the big network of collaboration, for example, from our site here on Tereshore, CAMH, with the uh, University of Calgary, with McGill. So we all have uh, worked together to create studies that will give us better answers in terms of how do you manage these symptoms in a safe, effective way, and when do you use medication, when you should not use medication, and if you use medications, what you should be monitoring, right? So uh, I'll share with you a couple of studies that are already um, in, in action here. So there's a study that is funded by Brain Canada uh, and the CABI Center that was uh, in collaboration with CAMH and Calgary and, and McGill that Ontario Shore is participating in. And in that study, we tried to find out if you follow uh, an integrated care pathway that is standardized, evidence-based, is this going to be better in terms of uh, all kinds of outcomes, like clinical outcomes, safety outcomes, cost outcomes. So that study is actually very successful. It's almost, um, I think it's almost two thirds uh, done recruitment. So by, the, by, June, by June, we'll be done with that study. Now, Terry Shore have contributed tremendously to that study uh, under the leadership of Dr. Sarah Elmi and myself from the committee. We, we have a study that is, uh, so this is inpatient, right? So people who are under our care in the inpatient unit, in dementia unit, another unit. Think about what happens to people who are home. So we have a study now that just got approved called the SCTAD study. It's um, a National Institute of Health uh, and National Institute of Aging uh, funded study from the United States. It has, has you know, over 20 sites uh, between Canada and the, and the United States. And the goal of that study is to see, could we intervene earlier? So instead of the inpatient study that I mentioned, this is looking at somebody who's still living home with a spouse or, or an adult child, and they have agitation of Alzheimer's disease. What do you need to do? Not medication only, it's like you do psychosocial intervention, problem solving, and after a few weeks of doing that, if the person still need help, then we get them to medication, either placebo or escitalopram, which is a drug that we have used for depression. So this study is, is another way of, of getting us to identify the signal earlier. Um, a study that is uh, coming to us as well very soon is funded by the Alzheimer Drug Discovery um, Foundation in the States, led by uh, uh, Sunnybrook, uh, and we're part of this, to look at the role of cannabinoids, uh, things such as, um, you know, we call them medical marijuana, but, but it's really synthetic uh, cannabinoids. It's a drug called Nabilon. And how is that maybe adding value to help people with agitation of Alzheimer's disease, both inpatient and outpatient? So at least we have three studies specific to improving uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms of dementia. And in addition to this, I'm gonna just mention that we're exploring other ways to detect agitation through wearable devices to see if we can give people a signal earlier to say, for example, so-and-so who have this illness is now showing signs of agitation. They're not agitated yet. You might be able to do something before um, they get agitated, such as, you know, uh, play some music they prefer or have some aromatherapy or activation. There's a lot. So all this happening at the same time. 
So you can see that we are really in the company of all the uh, leaders in the field and trying to ourselves to lead some areas such as the wearable devices. Just to follow up on that, one of the pieces you mentioned in the studies, you know, the science of agitation, and I and I understand in Alzheimer's Awareness Month, you know, one of the things they want to you know, reduce is the stigma associated with you know forms of dementia. People, and I'm saying people like the general society, I think when they feel or talk about the treatment of dementia, they go to drugs. And I know that that's part, you know, like pharmaceuticals are a part of, of treating dementia, but there really is a therapy you know, in term, aspect to it in terms of anticipating behaviors, uh, agitation before it happens. Like maybe you can talk a bit about that because I feel, I feel like that's an area that people don't necessarily equate with uh, the treatment of dementia. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's important to note that the quality standards to care for people with, with agitation and, and aggression is actually a product of Ontario Shores and, and, and CAMH. In fact, it, I participated in that, um, those standards, but uh, the previous uh, physician-in-chief, in uh, Dr. Alain Fischler and Dr. Tarek Raji from CAMH have, uh, were the co-chairs of that committee. So we work together, including, uh, you know, family representatives and long-term care representatives and, of course, practitioners and nurses and doctors to actually come up with the best possible standards we can come up with to say what is the right way of helping somebody with agitation uh, of Alzheimer's disease or aggression. And uh, we basically, after those standards were published, we started asking our, ourselves, well, if you tell people this is the right thing to do, how do you actually give them a recipe? Like, how do you actually uh, give them a knowledge and skills to say, okay, well, okay, I know what I need to do, and now I know how to do it, right? So we published a paper, um, again, in collaboration with, with others from CAMH and the other side, to actually come up with a recipe, you know, in the sense that you start by asking yourself, is this person in need for something that I'm not providing? So unmet need, uh, you know, somebody who's in pain, somebody who is not sleeping well or not uh, hydrated. So you do a whole set of, of, of investigation to understand what is the end method, what is this person trying to tell me uh, in, in their behavior? Maybe they can't articulate their need anymore. Uh, and then after that, you correct that, but also look at, could I occupy this person with, with something positive, uh, activation, positive activation, let's say. So all this actually resulted in these studies that I mentioned uh, earlier that we are attempting to answer the question that if we want to do the right thing, how are we going to do it? What's the most effective way of doing it? And if we're going to use medications, uh, how do we tailor the medication use to the safest possible way? So there are medications called antipsychotic medication that work quickly, work effectively, but they have a lot of risk involved. Now we're exploring acetalopram, the antidepressant that is safer from the perspective of uh, you know, stroke and death, but it might do the same thing. So let's find out how much it's going to help and, and do we need, uh, do we still need antipsychotic or not? So we're investigating all kinds of things to reduce the, um, the burden on page and people, families in particular. A lot of families come and say, I wish I don't, I wish that we don't need to use medications. Uh, could you do this without medication? Because I heard that they are harmful to my dad or to my mom who's dealing with, with Alzheimer's disease. And the assurance that we give back that, you know what, we share exactly the same concern. And we're going to do everything possible to explore non-pharmacological intervention, non-medication intervention. So it is a comprehensive 
model of care. And that's what's being studied in that uh, study I mentioned earlier, the STAN study, is that could we identify who needs medication, who doesn't need medication, and if we're going to use medication, how are we going to do it? What's the safest way of doing it? It's a big responsibility. But I can assure you, though, that it is very well studied now. It's, it's, it's actually funded by so many agencies. So it looks like people are drawing attention to it. And eventually, the stigma will go away, knowing that we're individualized in our practice. We respect the person. We, we treat them with dignity, find a good way of treating, and reduce the harm. You mentioned burden, and I want to want to explore that a little bit. So we know with changes in life expectancy, um, with families now, the single income family model is gone. You know, both both parents are working, um, and the pressure on the health system uh, and the cost of, of care for poor seniors population. How are we going to manage through this? When we look at all those things that are going on, people living longer, it'll be more people living with with dementia. How are we going to manage as a system and as families in the future? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, impact on, on families as well, because we, we have a whole set of uh, science on, on the impact of caring for somebody with Alzheimer's disease and, and, uh, and actually even more caring for somebody with behavioral symptoms of dementia and Alzheimer's disease and how that affects people's physical health and mental health. So it's really important to... To, to highlight the importance of uh, caring for the family that's caring for somebody with, the, with this illness. And, and that's part of the answer in a way, because like thinking about providing venues for care for the caregiver. Uh, for example, the Alzheimer's Society have created a whole model of uh, caregiver training, skill training, because the more prepared you are uh, to care for somebody with this illness and the more you get your own health taken care of through your uh, venue or through maybe facilitating access uh, the more we, we, we you know, become more uh, of a predictable journey, as difficult as it is, unpredictability creates more of a problem. You know, like showing up in the middle of the night because of a situation that was uncontrollable and you're know, spending hours waiting to be seen. That is, if I can avoid this, you know, and, and I have to say that in my practice in, in uh, the London, Ontario side, we had, I had a, a practice mainly focusing on neuropsychiatry of, of dementia and, and and being able to walk people through this journey um, without crises and try to support both the patient and the family is definitely part of the solution. So more caregiver orientation is important. Adding more partners in this. Uh, so it's not just the hospital. It's not just if, you know, the, the family uh, is dealing with it as well, but also finding out, could we make sure that we have a comprehensive circle of care that include community agencies like the Alzheimer's Society, community mental health. So it's not just one partner, right? If a person, long-term care is a huge example of how many beds we have, are they staffed well, could we support them in a, in a kind of more episode of care model where when the person comes to us for care, we do what we can do to help and get them to a better state and then bring them back to where they should be living with family or with... So it's really a complex situation to prepare for us is to try to reduce it to start with. If we can prevent it, it's obviously it would be amazing. But also when we see it, be prepared uh, to, to do what we can do in a big comprehensive network of care, not just one, uh, one pressure point. One of the things that you, you do in your role uh, here in Ontario Shores and as a geriatric psychiatrist is you're active on social media. And I know Chris and I being on the communication side, to have a position in chief who uh, knows how to log into Twitter and use it effectively is, 
you know, it's a, it's a godsend from our perspective. It's, uh, it's something, and you're also very active on LinkedIn. Uh, and I wonder if you just talk about, you know, why you choose to be in that form because you're there, you know, uh, owns it daily or at least every other day you're commenting, you're, you're sharing your, some of your opinions and your, whether it's about uh, your work or uh, personal opinions as well. But why do you choose to be on that forum? And do you think that that's an, a, you know, a tool that we can use to change, you know, opinions, whether it's shifting stigma associated with dementia or Ontario Shores? And where, how do you think it fits in in terms of, you know, some of the work that we want to do? Yeah, I'm a great question. Uh, I, th I think the main you know, motivation for me to be part of social media was, uh, you know, uh, there's a couple of things. One is being part of a network and, and being able to access, uh, you know, people who might have the same interests and maybe creating more value for for people that uh, that we work with, uh, both on the science side of things and the care side of things as well. So I've, I've actually came across a lot of interesting people from around the world that, that have the same interests and that created even more momentum. But uh, really one of the kind of big responsibilities I feel that the people like us who are opinion leaders in, in, in the field, like for me, it's going to be the field of dementia and then the field of healthcare, mental health, you know, some, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, you can easily ignore them. And after a while, they become a big um, evil that you have to get rid of. And then it's so hard sometimes to undo a damage. So I try to you know, put my voice out there to correct some of these misconceptions. I'm also aware of the risks involved. I mean, I, I might say something that could be, um, you know, maybe not well thought through because I did it in late at night while I'm uh, reviewing a, a posting. So I need to monitor my own uh, reaction to things and make sure that I'm not creating any um, misinformation myself. So I take that very, um, um, you know, there's a big responsibility that, that, that I need to be careful of what I write. But at the same time, I think we need voices of reason uh, out there. Social media has all kind of a mixed bag of information. And, and, and sometimes, unfortunately, things such as uh, pursuing care uh, could be halted by a misinformation. A vaccine was an example of the, the discussion that you see on social media where people say, well, we don't have good safety data. These trials were rushed through. And, and well, so, so then I, I basically I'm tempted to always go back and say, well, I don't think so, because I've, I've reviewed this and this is a good source of information. So not necessarily me claiming to be expert in an area that I'm not expert in. So I obviously my credibility for to talk about vaccine is within the scope of a general medical practitioner. So I'm not a virologist. I don't have that knowledge, but I can also go to the source and I say this is a reputable source. Uh, it's done within science uh, methodology. So in short, it's really about uh, the, the responsibility of keeping the voice uh, of advocacy out there in social media because a lot of people are tuning into it. Speaking of, there's one question that was burning with me and, and expert, and you're right, there's a lot of information, but I, I've heard two different sides on this very passionate subject, and I wanted to know where you stood. So. Um, you know, and in the Netherlands, they have sort of like a dementia village where a community wraps around people with dementia and it's all inclusive. And do you support that as a, or there are others will say, no, the community needs to evolve to support people living in the community with dementia. So if you have mixed feelings, you know, I've heard on both sides, how you feel about those two types of things. Yeah, I think I'm aware of the, the models um and different, uh, you know, different philosophies, different ethical frameworks uh, to deal with, with, with dementia. I think, um, you know, 
the, the way I see it, that this is um, an illness that will affect any of us, basically. It's, I mean, there will be some minority of people that are at high risk. So it is a reality that we have to deal with. Uh, finding a way to integrate this to part of our life uh, and, and actually creating solutions that are more integrated within, within our society will be more likely to succeed. Uh, so it's not specialized you know, care centers and it has to be part of the community for the majority of people's life. Because if you live for 10 years with an illness like Alzheimer's disease and you're in your 80s or 70s, that's 10 years of life. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of, you know, big chunk of life that require a lot of... So I think the more normalization we have, the better. Um, and then specialized uh, services <clears throat> could integrate themselves to that paradigm by providing care. I'm not sure that's what you're asking because I just want to make sure... And that's no, it's, it's it's excellent because we've talked about, you know, transit, public transit. Does it evolve to support people with with dementia? Like, there's a lot of things that need to change in the community to be more friendly to, to, to the right. population. Right. But that's a big evolution, right? Yeah, yeah, but but it is it's a framework, right? It's a framework of making sure that we accept that the person who is going through the journey, they're not in a terminal state of an illness, that they can be living, uh, if you actually detect uh, you know, Alzheimer's disease early, on, early enough, you can have you know, 10 to 15 years journey. So that, how, you know, how do you propose living that journey, especially that the person is not gone, they're still there. There's a person behind the illness. So sometimes you know, people miss, lose track of this and call this is the Alzheimer person. Well, there's no such a thing. There's a person that developed an illness called Alzheimer. And, and the more we actually allow people to be now, accommodating the way we accommodate for the person who lost their vision, maybe from childhood or lost. We need to accommodate and it gets more and more complex, of course, the more uh, function you lose. But I think the framework and accepting that this is part of our society and finding a way to accommodate, like any other disability that we accept, is, is the framework that I believe in. Thank you. Well, it's, to Chris's point, we're gonna have to learn to, to adapt to this because I think I was reading that uh, 68% of our, our population is going to grow 68% in the next 20 years. Uh, it's going to age, be over 65, which is right in those that areas where they're prone to or susceptible to Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. So we don't have a choice. We got to get yeah. uh, we got got to figure this out. So um, not, on that note, I just we just wanted to thank you for for joining us. Uh, I think we could have talked for much longer, but. Um, it was a great start, and uh, it's great to have you out, out on Cherry Shores and out there on social media, and uh, we really appreciate you taking time today. Yeah, thank you again for the opportunity. It's a, it's a great forum to, uh, to share thoughts and discussions. Again, uh, a lot of things are uh, still being uh, developed, and our opinion will continue to evolve. But as long as we have the good uh, ethical framework to say that what we learn, try to share with our uh, you know, patients and, and families and ourselves, and you know what? Uh, when we're wrong, we, we're the first to admit that we're wrong. We, so we keep evaluating ourselves. There's no such a thing as I know it all. Uh, so we're humbled by the complexity of people's lives and I continue to, uh, to learn and continue to share my knowledge as, uh, as you said. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Take care.